Our guest is in studio for the next two hours here. We're going to have a lot of fun talking about a lot of things. She is Mindy McGinnis, author of a new book, Heroin. Uh, so glad to have you here, Mindy. Ah, thanks for having me. Now, uh, Heroin is, how many books have you written? A heroin would be my eighth book. And for the audience, the title is Heroin with an E on the end. Heroin as in a female hero, although it does focus on the opioid epidemic and also then heroin the drug. So that was purposeful. Yes, absolutely. If you look at the cover, my cover designer is a genius. And the way the cover looks is that it says heroin with the E and then there's a cloud that is covering it. So it slips down into heroin, the drug, and then a hero and then her, because it is also uh, very much about a female athlete and the experience of being a female athlete and how an injury then leads to the use of Oxycontin to get through physical therapy and then the slow slide down into addiction to IV drugs. Where did the idea come from? The idea came from an experience that I had as an author. I was doing a school visit in a pretty poor district in southern Ohio. And I was there and I was speaking to some of the staff. And they were talking to me about the problems that they were having in their community. And uh, they were having a lot of economic issues because in many ways their economy had collapsed because people didn't have cash anymore. People were paying each other with pills. They didn't have cash. Uh, small businesses were dying. A lot of their students actually would leave the area, join the military just to get away. And I ended up having this conversation with them about the things that were going on in their community. And I was driving home. It was about a three-hour drive. And I was thinking about this. And I was thinking about the opioid epidemic. And my sister had read the book Dreamland, which is by Sam Quinones. And it is about the opioid epidemic. And and specifically Southern Ohio and regions there that are widely regarded to be the epicenter for the opioid epidemic beginning in the 90s with the pill mills and um, the overprescription of Oxycontin. And I was driving home and I was thinking, I want to learn more about this and I want to read that book. And Sid Fleischman is an author who says that in order to make a fire, you have to have two sticks that rub together and spark. And in order to write a story, you need two ideas, and they have to strike each other and spark. And I had this idea that I want to write about the opioid epidemic, but I don't have that second stick. So I just put that in my head, let it sit, and it'll, it'll sit there, and it'll strike up against something else eventually, and I'll have a story. I know that. I trust that process. I just let it go. So about a month later, I graduated from Cardington in 19. 1997, and I worked there in the library for about 14 years. I am able to write full-time now, so I don't work there anymore. But our softball team is phenomenal. They have gone to state for the past two years. Last year, they were actually runner-up champions in uh, the third, third division. So... I was at the game because my niece is the first baseman and I was at one of their state games last year and it was phenomenal to see basically the entire town there supporting female athletes, which is something you didn't really see when I was a teenager. And I was so moved. I had goosebumps and all of a sudden that stick hit the other stick where I'm like female athletes. I've always wanted to write about female athletes and the opioid epidemic, a, a an injury for an athlete is a very common intro story to addiction. It happens much more commonly than you think. And I was just like, oh, I've got it. There, there's my book. And I, I uh, very quickly jotted some thoughts down, sent it off to my agent who said, yes, I think that we can 
make this walk it has legs and my editor immediately said yes we're gonna buy that let's go so I didn't even have to have pages I just said here's my concept and it was so um, unfortunately relevant to today's times that it was in production and written and out on the shelves within a year which is a very short production time for traditional publishing Mm. now growing up in the area tell us about your childhood Oh, it was great. So my dad's a farmer. My family has been farming for like nine generations. I do genealogy and I've gone all the way back to uh, Pennsylvania in the 1700s. And that's what we do. We're farmers. I'm not from a long line of writers, but um, I always knew that I wanted to be a writer. It's just something that has always been in me. There's always stories in me. Every event isn't an event. It's a story. It's something I'm going to capture and release again later in the form of a story. And so I always knew that as a child when I was growing up, um, live in the middle of nowhere. All of my friends, God bless them, my friends from publishing that grew up in you know New York or Chicago or LA, I try to explain to them that you can't see another house from my house and they don't understand. That's just weird to them. So, and when they come visit me, they are astounded at how dark it is outside. And I'm like, yes, it is dark. There's no streetlights. <laughs> So that's how I grew up. And um, I graduated from Cardington in 97. I went to Otterbein in Columbus. Um, I graduated from Otterbein with a degree in English literature. I double majored in literature and then also a philosophy of religion and um, quickly realized that I really had no useful skills for the job market and ended up working in retail actually for quite a few years. Landed the library job there at Cardington and had been working on getting published getting an agent is the first step if you want to follow traditional publishing had been working on that for about 10 years before i actually got picked up but a lot of my childhood is reflected in all of my books all of my books with the exception of the two fantasy titles that i've written are set in ohio they're set in a rural area um something that i often find as a reader a voracious reader is that whenever you see most of the time often when you see poverty being um, described described on the page. Most poverty that people like to address in fiction is um, urban poverty. Rural poverty isn't often described accurately. Most of the time when I see people, if they haven't lived it themselves, they aren't actually describing rural poverty very well. And it's something, of course, growing up in Morrow County and working in the schools for over a decade that you see and you experience daily. And it's something that I always try to represent uh, poverty, but also just small town life. And people don't, people that art from small towns can't grasp the insular community for both the pros and the cons involved in that. And so that's something that I always try to represent. All of my books are uh, very rural settings, always Ohio. And, uh, you know, it's the place of my heart. So you're working at the library trying to get an agent. What's that process like? Getting an agent is pretty difficult. So in order to get an agent, you have to write what is called a query letter. A query letter is about 300 words in which you make your book sound like the most interesting book that has ever been written and make yourself sound like the most fascinating person that was ever born. And you do that in about 300 words and you send off an email. An agent gets anywhere from three to 500 queries a week. 
So standing out in that inbox is very difficult. Uh, something like 1% of the query letters that hit inboxes actually turn into requests. So if they look at it and it's like, oh, you know, I think this story could be interesting. This person sounds like they know what they're talking about. Then uh, they'll do either a partial or a full request. They're asked for 25 or 50 pages or possibly the whole manuscript. You send it to them. Then the agent makes a decision about whether or not they want to represent you. They don't make any money until they have sold your book to a publisher. So they are investing their time in you up front and then you have a phone call and you decide if this is someone that you want to work with because it is a business relationship but there's also it's uh, publishing is weird because it is art and business combined it's creativity plus the bottom line and that gets really tricky at times so for instance I had two agents offering on my first book uh, not a drop to drink which is post-apocalyptic survival in a world with very little water and I had two different agents uh, wanting to represent that book and me as a writer, one of them being a very well-known agent in the romance community who had sold something like 30 titles just that month. The other agent being a new agent, a baby agent, who had only sold one book, but was definitely a grittier interest. She liked the grittiness of my style and the less than happy endings that I usually produce. And after having conversations with both of these agents, I went with the underdog. I went with the agent that had only sold one book up to that point. Now she's a much bigger deal. This was 12 years ago. But I went with her because creatively, she and I were going to mesh better. Um, Business-wise, I would have been smarter with that bottom line to go with the agent that I knew had more sales, but we didn't have the same creative uh, flint strike. So it's always it's always a gamble between those two things. Um, getting an agent is difficult. It took me 10 years. Part of the reason it took me 10 years was because I wasn't doing the research that's required in order to do things correctly. Um, I wrote the first draft of a book when I was I believe I was a freshman in college, um, hacked it out, believed that I was an undiscovered genius, uh, definitely getting a Pulitzer, you know, very proud of myself, thinking that I was amazing, didn't do any editing, didn't show it to anyone, finished the book, wrote a query letter, sent it off. And I did get some requests just because the concept was good. But then as soon as I sent in pages, they sent back rejections because the writing was terrible. So it took me 10 years to learn. Uh, you have to share your work with uh, ideally other writers, get feedback, give feedback, learn to accept criticism. You can't be thin-skinned. I mean, there's so many different things involved that you have to be able to you know, process that criticism and improve. Compliments do not make you a better writer. So once you have the agent and you send the book out, tell us about the editing process. Okay, so the way it works is you acquire an agent, and it depends on how editorial your agent is. Some agents are heavily editorial, and they want to work with the manuscript before you send it off to put it in its best possible shape before it goes in front of an editor. And um, some are less editorial. It just depends, and that's something you also take into account when you are looking for your agent, whether you want someone that is going to give you editorial feedback before you even go to an editor. My agent is a little more hands-off on the editorial. I definitely had some feedback. She worked with me a little bit, especially on my first book. Now that we're deeper in the process, I'm on my eighth book. Um, I'm fortunate enough to be able to just sell on concept. So I will sell, it's called on spec, on speculation. So I will just be like, hey, this is my idea. And I'll give them a quick write-up, like two pages, and they'll just buy 
the concept from me and trust me to write the book. But when you are first going out, you have that uh, entire novel. It has to be finished. Your agent reads it when they believe it's ready to go. Your agent then compiles a list of editors that they have personal connections with, usually in New York City. And they then put these your book in front of these editors. And at that point, what you do is nothing. It can take up to six months to hear back from editors. They have a huge, it's called the slush pile. They have a huge um, amount of reading that they have to do. Um, if you have a good agent, they're going to get that up to the top of the editor's pile. Um, if it has a timely, like for instance, heroin, obviously my editor has worked with me extensively before. They know it's a timely issue. It goes right to the top. They're going to look at it. Um, your agent knows what editors are looking for. So each publishing house, they have a list for every season. So there are seasons in publishing just like in, you know, the, uh, the real world. So you have summer, fall, winter and spring seasons and each uh, publishing house has imprints, which then have a list of a certain amount of titles and those slots are getting filled. And so they know someone like I'm there is someone that is definitely looking for a post-apocalyptic novel to get into their uh, fall of 2013 list. And my agent is the one that knows that. I don't have to know that. That's my agent's job. So she gets my first book not a drop to drink in front of editors she knows are looking for more post-apoc and they have room on their lists and so then the editors read it there's a long wait time and then uh, they come back and typically with rejections you're going to see rejections uh, for the rest of your life it never even once you've quote unquote succeeded you're still being rejected all you have to do is read your reviews you're still being rejected constantly um so that the editors, they will look at your, they look at the book, they read it, even, and they can even love it. Like there can be an editor that absolutely loves it, but then they have to take it to what is called um, acquisitions. They have to take it to an acquisitions meeting and they represent the book and say, I want to edit this book and I think it's good fit for the list and this is why. And an acquisitions meeting has editors, it has marketing, it, you know, everybody's in on that. And they have to decide not only is this a good book, but is it a good fit for our list? Is it a good fit for this imprint? Is it something that is going to jive well with the other products that we're putting out? Is there another title that is going to compete with this coming out from another um, imprint that maybe has a better known author? Is this going to be a pale shade of that? And so there's all these things that, that aren't up to you. As a writer, your best job your only job is to write the best book that you can and then everyone else is going to take it from there if you're lucky enough that acquisitions meeting they say yes let's go let's buy this what they do is they run a PL, a profit and loss statement and then they decide how much of an advance they can reasonably offer you that you will earn out then on and that comes back to the agent who then hands it on to you and then if you're lucky enough to have more than one offer um, of an advance then you get you have to like talk to the editors and decide which editor you're going to be a better creative fit with or you can just go with the money and go with whoever offers you the most money so um that whole process is absolutely um it's mind-boggling because your entire fate is absolutely out of your hands i had multiple editors with my first book come back to me and say yeah i love this book but when you're working in publishing, you're, what you're writing now or what you're working on or trying to get published now will be out 
in two years. It is a long process. And at that particular time, the door for post-apocalyptic literature was closing. Hunger Games had already come out. Divergent had come out. All of the the big blow-ups for post-apoc had already happened. It was a dying genre. I was fortunate enough to get in and just slip in. And a lot of people were passing on it simply because they thought that the market was already flooded and it was a dead genre and people were going to be moving on by the time the book came out. Luckily, I had two different... No, I had three different publishers they were interested enough to say i think this is different enough we can make this happen and so i was fortunate enough to have three offers um i went with katherine tegan which is an imprint of harper collins and they have published me ever since we have a really good relationship when you're writing your first book uh not down to dollars and cents but is the advance good it depends. It depends. You can have a debut author get a million dollar advance. If the publisher is looking at that and saying, yes, we can sell this and it will, it has legs, it's going to walk, people are going to buy this because of the concept. This book will sell. You can get a million dollar advance as a debut. You can also get a $3,000 advance as a debut. If you're not writing something fresh, something new, if you don't have a new take on something, you know, you can get you you can even possibly not get an advance and just earn royalties um, as you sell. It you never know. Once you are published, they have your sales numbers for all of the books that have already come out and they can see how you're going to perform and that can either work for or against you. So I have eight books out and so they have profit and loss statements on all of my titles. They know exactly how many books I have sold. And that, as I said, can either work for or against you when you pitch your next book. There's something called the debut effect. It's the nice shiny new author. You know, you trot some you make a decision about an author. If you read a book and you're like, mm, that was okay, you're probably not going to pick up their next one. If you read a book and you don't like it, you're definitely not going to pick up their next one. You have to be really impressed by the author themselves to continue to pick up their work. And so your backlist, your already published titles can be um, kind of a, a weight around your neck. They can be an albatross if they're not selling well. Working at the library, when you got the first advance, for you, was it, oh, this is great? Oh, yeah, definitely. Um, I was working in the library, but I do not have my master's. I am not a librarian. I don't have my MLIS, so I was working as an aide. I was making about $12 an hour. <laughs> and so, yeah, I mean, any amount of money is great. If I found, uh, if I put on my winter coat when it got cold and I found a 20 in the pocket, I was like, holy crap, that's amazing, right? So, yes, I mean, it was, it was a life-changing experience to become published, but by no means did my life suddenly become easier um it became easier it did not become simple um people always ask me yes i mean i am fortunate enough now that i am able to write full-time this is what i do for a living people uh assume that this translates into dollars it doesn't so i'm often asked if i have a boat like that seems to be the uh yardstick by which wealth is measured so people ask me if i have a boat and i say yes i do it's a canoe and i bought it used that's about what i can afford Mm. The first book, when it came out, what was that experience like? Uh, It was phenomenal, but it was also eye-opening. So my publisher, HarperCollins, sent me on tour, which is an amazing experience. I toured with uh, four other authors. Ray Carson, who actually uh, was an Ohio resident at the time. She's from Worthington. She wrote the Girl of Fire and Thorns series. She was a New York Times bestselling author, amazing person. Uh, Sherry Thomas, who is also a very well-known romance author. Madeline Rue and... uh, uh, Michelle Gagnon. We all toured together. 
And it was funny because I had bought cute clothes and I had bought new makeup and new shoes and all these different things. And I had two suitcases and I show up at the airport because Ray Carson and I were flying out together and she has one carry on and it's very small and we're touring for a week. And I was like, where's your other bag? And she's like, I don't have one. And she just kind of laughed because she looked at my bags and she was like, you'll see. So we are going to our first book signing. I think we were in California and we were going to a Barnes and Noble. And um, as I said, Sherry is uh, famous. Ray is famous. And there are five of us going to this book signing. And I, you know, put on a dress and put on heels and makeup and hair and everything. And Ray is like, honey, you look really, really, you're really cute. You know, and I come downstairs and Ray has on jeans and a T-shirt and her hair's up in a ponytail. And I was like, is that what you're wearing? And she said, yeah, you'll see. And I told her, like, I, I don't understand. Like, why, why aren't we more excited about what's going on here? And she was like, honey. There will be more authors at this book signing than people. And I was like, okay. I mean, surely she's wrong. And I should have known better. I mean, she's an old old hand at this. Like, we walk in, there are five authors, there are four attendees. And so there's this idea of, you know, red carpet and everything is, you know, you're famous, hooray. And it's it's not. Like, you're working, you're schlepping when you're going out there. You're trying to sell books. I think I sold one book that night and I think I sold it to the bookstore manager who felt sorry for me um I have done events even now um I've been published since 2013 I have eight books out um I won the Edgar Allan Poe award for one of my books I've done three events just this year where zero people showed up and that is perfectly fine because it keeps you humble but there's never um I was at an event in I believe Westerville last month um Victoria Schwab, who was an incredibly famous author, was uh, at an event for Westerville. There were over 300 people there, and someone asked her, how do you know when you've made it? And she's like, I, I don't know. She said, look, I'm here tonight, and there's 300 people, and tomorrow I'll have an event, and five people will show up. You never know, and you never feel like you made it. And uh, it's it's a wonderful lesson that you're relearning and relearning every time you go out in public, every time you do an event. What has been the best part of this for you? having fans that I don't expect. So I write, technically I write YA, I write young adult. There are books that feature teenagers as main characters. I would say 70 to 80% of my readers are adults. And I have a particular fan that I enjoy immensely. I do a festival called Sia, which is in Tennessee. I do that every year. And it is a festival for YA books, and they have something like three to 5,000 teenagers running around. And I have a fan that is I probably in his early 50s, uh, a guy that comes every year because he loves my books, and he is so intensely uncomfortable standing in line with a bunch of really, like, hyper teens that are just chatty, 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 chatty. And he comes every year, comes up to me, and it's like, I'm just here for you. Please sign my book so I can go home now. <laughs> And it's just, it's so cool to have fans that, and I've even had people tell me, I haven't read a book in 15 years. I read your book. And that is a compliment that those are the best moments is when I have people tell me they aren't readers. They don't read, but they read my books. What has been the worst part? 
anytime that you do an event and no one shows. Um, it's always humbling. Also, seeing other people's success. I mean, that's true of any any job, uh, any moment in, in life. But yeah, I mean, you'll see other people achieve wild success. Uh, movie deals and you know they have a ridiculous amount of money and all these things and they are um you know good writers but you are just as good and you are always asking why not me why isn't that me why isn't that happening for me and you don't have an answer there is no answer for that uh, marketing doesn't know if they knew how to turn everyone into the million dollar uh, baby that gets all the book deals and all the money, then they would do that because it makes money for the publisher too. There is an amount of luck and grace that is involved that no one knows what the magic formula is to make a book pop. We just keep trying. And, and that is the hardest part. The hardest part is that you don't know what it takes to actually succeed and, and blow out. You don't know what it takes. And sometimes you don't even know what your efforts, what efforts you are doing. You don't know if they're effective so for example i have um like a mailing list of every independent bookstore uh in the country that is you know addresses that i can find independent bookstores every public library in ohio and also any states that i've won major awards in and i do a physical mailing every year when i have a new book come out and it's a postcard of the cover of my book and on the back it's got a little blurb about it and then you know my social media is in the isbn for the book so they can order it online uh, through ingram or baker and taylor if you're a librarian or a, an independent bookstore and i send those out like to the industry people to booksellers to librarians and that's who i'm sending it out to and it's like four thousand five thousand postcards that i am paying for stamps to put on and putting address labels on and i have no idea if those drive sales, I don't know if they're effective. I don't know if it makes people go, oh, look, Mindy has a new book out. I simply don't know. And, you know, I'm putting time and money into it. And it could be the single most effective thing I do. It could be utterly useless. And I just don't know. How much insecurity is involved in this? Oh, it's all insecurity. It's all insecurity. I mean, you're putting creativity out there. You're putting um, – when I first started trying to get published, I was very anxious when I sent out my first round of query letters. Um, I was married at the time, and my husband said, I don't understand why you're, why you're so nervous. And I said, well, I just put my soul in a box, and I mailed it to New York City. That's how you feel. You, um, you're putting yourself out there. You're putting a piece of work out there. And people are going to criticize it. That's just the way it is. Um, and like I said, there is constant rejection. You get rejection um, constantly through readers, through um, you know agents and editors. And even though, as I said, this is my eighth book, and I will pitch ideas to my editors and to my agent, and they'll be like, mm, no, mm, that's not that one. Try again. Um, so there's always it's, – it's all insecurity. Um, it's not a business for the uh, weak of heart or the thin-skinned because you will constantly meet rejection. You have to develop a thick skin very quickly or you will have a nervous breakdown. You know, it's interesting. People I've interviewed over the years, people who are, I would say are in the arts, actors, actresses, writers, uh, people in movies, there tends not only to be a little bit of insecurity in all those people, but there's also uh, a toll that mm. it takes for some reason. It it messes with their life mm -hmm. in a way. Mm -hmm. There's a I guess the best way to put it. There's a price that they pay mm -hmm. for being driven enough 
to succeed at what they're doing. Mm-hmm. Uh, have you paid any kind of price? Um, I'm not famous enough to have paid a price yet, I don't think. Um, I'm still at a point where I was recognized the other day at the movie theater. That was awesome. You know, it's like I, I thought it was incredible. And that's happened to me a couple of times, like at sporting events or um, at, at the movies or if I go out in public. I do occasionally have people recognize me. And I'm still at a point where that is flattering and I love it and I find it enjoyable. If I were ever at a point where I can't, you know, go out to eat without having people ask me to take a selfie, yeah, that would probably suck. But here's the thing. Writers don't deal with that level of um, facial recognition. So very few people could say, could pick out a writer out of a lineup, with the exception of Stephen King. He's very um, iconic looking. So um, writers generally, you're not going to just recognize them on the street. Actors and actresses, sure. Radio personalities, only when they talk. So that's the kind of thing that as a writer, you can achieve a pretty high degree of success and um, still have a fair amount of anonymity when you're out in public. When it comes to your personal life, because I assume a lot of time has to be spent on this, Mm -hmm. and I think it's also a little complicated because it's not like other people's nine to five jobs. Mm -hmm. Do you pay a price there? Oh, absolutely you do, because you don't have an office and you don't have working hours. So um, if I get an email at midnight that needs to be answered right now, I have to answer it. And so you are constantly checking. And the other thing is you are marketing yourself constantly. So social media is a must. So, I mean, I wouldn't use social media if I weren't a writer. I I don't enjoy it. But it is something that you have to do if you want to be present in the modern world as a commodity, which you are when you're a writer. And so um, I am at a point where I actually enjoy it now. I've learned how to use it appropriately, but I've also learned how to filter myself. Like I'm, I'm not um, consuming things that are going to upset me. I'm not consuming things that are going to be frustrating. I am putting my stuff out in the world, um, saying what I have to say. If it's a bad day, if it's a bad news day, I'm going to tweet kitten pictures, right? It's like, I don't need to talk about the horrible things that are happening on the news. If that's the main thing that's trending right now on Twitter, there's enough information out there about that right now. I don't need to contribute. I'm just going to say what I have to say about my day today. Here's a picture of my cat. You know, we're just going to move on. And um, so there is a toll in time and the invasion of the job into your daily life because of the fact you can't leave work at the door because there's no door, right? How do friends, relationships deal with that? Family? Um, Pretty normally. I mean, I lately have decided that I do need to start saying you're only writing from these hours, period, and then you're done. You're not going to check email. You're not going to be using social media. Like, you're going to have to turn that off because it can become all-consuming because it's a cycle. It's constantly changing. So if I tweet something, um, I'm going to check back in 20 minutes later to see how people reacted, to see how it went, to see if people liked it, to see if it got retweeted. And I hate that. Like, that's ridiculous. I mean, it is a cycle, and it is it is it was created that way on purpose, right? So uh, a lot of people I know... Uh, that are writers, and we've talked about this before, is, um, you know, you wake up and you do your round of social media. Mine is Twitter, Facebook, and um, Instagram. And then you go about, you answer emails, and then you check back in. And you see how what you put out there floated and see how it did. And and you're going to do that throughout the day. And you have to willingly say, I'm not doing that anymore. Um, And it is like, you know, (laughs) it is... 
it is a system that was built to make us keep looking and it is also because you get immediate satisfaction if you say something funny and people are like oh that's great you're funny you're like huh you know you get that little boost and then you want more and you go back we're babies we're all babies right so that's the kind of thing that you, you do have to learn to regulate that and to regulate your time and to be aware of what your priorities are and um you know, when you're working on a book, for example, you also have to be able to do the marketing and the promotion and the presence on social media, but also you have to turn that off when you are writing because it is a constant gratification machine. So you will go back to go look instead of writing. And, you know, people can get really bogged down on it. There are different programs that you can actually install on your computer that block social media accounts so you can't even log on while you're writing. And you can tell it, don't let me get on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram for, you know, the next three hours because I'm only writing. Um, I have enough willpower to just write when it's time to write. But, I mean, yeah, it, it is it is um, an invasive type of job because it is also personal. It's in, intensely personal. You know, I'm not a tax accountant. I'm not coming home from crunching numbers and I can just leave that. You know, you are putting part of yourself into every book. And so, like, in a way, you're being cannibalized by your own profession. You know, I've noticed that most people who are driven in the arts world, uh, they tend not to like vacations. They mm. don't take them very often. They maybe don't live in the moment. They mm. say, boy, that was a great thing, but it's gone. Mm -hmm. And it's on to the next thing. You're only as good as the next thing. Mm. Uh, how do you feel about that? Well, it's an interesting statement because it's true. You're always looking for the next thing, right? Um, that's what consumers want is the next thing. We're going to consume this. Give us something new. And so... Yeah, I mean, it's very true, but something else that is true, especially in publishing, is that frontlist sells backlist. This is something you'll hear a lot. So when you have a new book come out, your backlist, the books that are already published, sell. So especially right now with my newest book, with Heroin, it is reaching a wider audience than my other books have reached simply because it is such a universal story. And so I have seen my backlist sales go up exponentially because people didn't even know I existed they read this book and they're like, I like her. I like her writing. Then they go like, what else has she written? Well, I have seven other books. And if they like me as a writer, they're going to go buy some of them. And so you can't always be looking for the next thing, the thing that's going to break you out, the thing that is going to make you. But every new thing injects new life into your old work. That's how I look at it. Um, some authors are constantly hawking only the newest thing. Whenever I do an event, um, I travel with all of my titles. I want to have everything available because I also write widely. I write across a huge expanse of genres. Um, I've written post-apocalyptic. I've written historical. I've written contemporary and I've written fantasy and mystery. So I want to have a book available for the reader standing in front of me. And if it's a book that I wrote in 2013, if that's what's appropriate for them, that's the one I'm going to give them. I'm not always only pushing my front list. I'm going to push what I have that fits you. Are you able to relax? Mm. Probably that answer is no, because everything in life can be a form of inspiration. So in a sense, yes, you may not always experience every moment. One thing that I do specifically to make sure that I am living in the moment, I don't document 
my entire life. Like people who are watching a, you know, a sporting event or if they are experiencing something in the outdoors, if there's something going on that they're like, oh, you immediately reach for your phone and you document the moment. And as soon as you put your phone in front of you, you have created a screen. You've put a wall up. There is a divide between you and the event. And I do not do that. When I experience something, I don't document it. I just experience it. And that's how I draw the line between my personal life and my private life, my personal life and my professional life. Because in my professional life, yes, I want to document it. Because if I do an event and there's a lot of people that show up, we want to take pictures and we want to tweet them and say, look, all these people are here. This is really cool. If I'm in my private life and I see, let's say, a painted turtle in the woods, I'm not going to take a picture and tweet it and be like, check out this painted turtle, everyone. I'm going to sit there and look at the turtle and just be there with the turtle. You know, th- this is a fascinating subject, and I'm glad we have you for the two hours because it's going to be a, very interesting. But I always wonder about that. When I scroll through social media mm-hmm. and I see people taking pictures of their food, mm-hmm. I see people taking pictures of trees, I see people taking pictures of what they did last night. Right. I always wonder, uh, that's an odd thing to do to me. <laughs> it would be, wh- why, I mean, are, aren't you doing it? Isn't right. it enough that you did it? It used to be that way. Oh, I know. Um, okay, so I agree with you. Like, personally, no, I'm not going to do that. I remember one time, one time, I took a picture of my food, and it was hilarious because I had already eaten it. So I took a picture of my empty plate, and I said, you know, I just ate this. I was in Texas, and, um, you know, I was at a great Mexican restaurant, and I was like, you know, I just ate this, and I tweeted it or Instagrammed or whatever, and, and everybody hit back, and they're like, you're supposed to take a picture of the food before you eat it. And I'm like, that defeats the purpose. It was set in front of me. I was hungry, so I ate it. You know, I was experiencing the food as it arrived in front of me. And I took a picture of an empty plate to show you how good it was. Doesn't that make more sense, right? And everybody was like, no, Mindy, that's not how you do it. (laughs) So, I mean, yeah, I'm never going to be one that is taking a picture of my newborn baby, for example, and showing it to everyone or even a cat. Well, what about the selfie? Oh, I hate them. I I, I love the selfies now that say, aren't we so happy? (laughs) And the first thing I think is, no. No, you're not. Why are you showing me this? Yeah, no, you're not, because you want me to tell you that you look happy. Um, So I had this fascinating experience in New York. I was was at the, um, oh, I'm not coming, the building that uh, King Kong fell off of. Help me out. Empire the Empire State, State Building. Yes. There we go. So I went to the Empire State Building, and um, I was on the. I paid the, like an extra ten dollars to go to the highest viewing floor. Okay, so I'm on the highest viewing floor of the Empire State Building, and I'm trying to look at this iconic view and this iconic skyline, and every you know all these movies that end in these romantic you know meetups at the top of the Empire State Building, and everyone has a selfie stick. And you can't walk around a corner because everyone is leading with their selfie stick. And you are going, and they're not watching and they're not paying attention. And you're going to get hit in the face with a selfie bar if you're walking around a corner. And everybody is taking pictures and everybody is trying to like lean into each other for the shot or make sure you're not in their shot. And no one is looking at the city. People literally have their backs turned to the view to get a picture of themselves in the view and i'm like this is the most ironic thing i have ever seen everyone standing on the viewing platform of the empire state building with their back turned to the view 
It's very interesting. It's absolutely true. Uh, the guest today on the program, Mindy McGinnis, author of the new book, Heroin. That's heroin with an E on the end. Uh, we have about five minutes left in this hour, and I want to do this both hours. We're going to have another hour with Mindy. But, Mindy, you got an event in Delaware and also another big event coming out. So uh, coming up. So let's uh, definitely plug these while we have time here. For sure. Tonight... I will be at the Orange Branch of the Delaware Library. I will be there at 7 p.m. And I will be talking about my book, A Madness So Discreet, which is a gothic historical thriller set in an insane asylum. This book actually won the Edgar Allan Poe Award in 2015. And I will be ta- the title of my talk tonight is Blood, Brains, and Lobotomies. So I will be talking about insane asylums. I'll be talking about the treatment of the insane. It also deals with serial killers, the beginning of criminal profiling, and it is set in Athens at the Athens Lunatic Asylum in the 1890s. So I will be at the Orange Branch of the Delaware Public Library tonight at 7 p.m. And I will have all of my books there available for sale as well. Sounds great. And is there, a, there another big event coming up here? Yes, there is another big event that um, I have participated in since 2013. It is the Ohioana Book Festival. It is a wonderful time. It has been, this will be the 12th year. It's been running since 2007. Um, there will be roughly 100 authors, all either from Ohio or with an Ohio connection, or they have write about Ohio. Everything, um, adult, teenage, children's, nonfiction, just about everything is there. And it attracts about 3,000 people every year. This year, we are going to be at the new Columbus Metropolitan Public Library, the main branch, was, which is at 96 South Grant Avenue. And that event is free. It's open to the public. It is happening April 27th from 1030 to 5 p.m. That's a great library to go to if you've never been to one. Been to that library. Yeah, absolutely. And they have a new, uh, the main is a new build. And uh, one of the reasons we moved to the Ohioana Festival there was because it had been at the Sheraton for the past three or four years. And uh, we moved to the Columbus Library now because they have a wonderful new beautiful space that uh, we can utilize and bring the public to. Do you think people talk nowadays? Do they? Word of mouth used to be a big thing when in selling things, but do you think people talk? Anymore? Oh, absolutely, and that is one of the key things to marketing that we talk about all the time. Is that we can create ads, we can put ads on Facebook, we can put ads on Twitter and Instagram, and we can do you know blog tours, and we can put ourselves in front of people and do bookstore events, and we can do all these things. But what sells books is word of mouth, and that is what everyone agrees on in marketing. Is that what sells books? is people talking about books to each other. And the question is, how do we generate that? And it is it is the key that everyone wishes they had. Uh, but yeah, I mean, word of mouth still, even in today's society, word of mouth, people talking about books is still the best possible advertisement. A book recommendation from your friend is the first book you're going to pick up, not the ad you saw in the subway. You know what's interesting? Uh, with the internet age in the last 15 years of social media, advent of social media, I think it's interesting that people have started to do a lot of marketing on social media, and I certainly understand that. But it seems like the people who sell a lot and do a lot still do the traditional media. And I think that's that's that word of mouth thing. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, yeah definitely. To drum that up. Yeah. For yeah. sure. And and putting yourself in front of people. I mean, I can tell you from everything I do, I do, a, I look a lot at my stats and I look at what I do that will send a bump into my sales and doing an event, putting yourself in front of people, talking, 
being on a panel, having an appearance, doing a reading, all of those things, they matter. You might sell five more books, but that's five more books. And it's a ripple effect. One person finds your book, reads it. They maybe have two friends that they tell, you got to read this book. Those two people each have two or three friends that they tell. One of those people might be a librarian. And once they start pushing your book or an educator, and once they start pushing your book, I mean, you you really can't... Um, you really can't undermine that. I mean, it's the, you can't beat it. There's nothing better than word of mouth when it comes to uh, book promotion. And it's just the question of how do you generate it. What have you found is the best way? For me, it's personal appearances. I am comfortable speaking in public. I worked with teens for 14 years. I'm good with kids. I can do writing workshops. I do school visits. When I am out in public... I can sell books. Um, I did a tour for 10 days. My, one of my books, The Female of the Species, won the Sequoia Award out in Oklahoma. And I toured for 10 days to promote that book. And it hit the bestseller lists in Oklahoma because of my appearances. And this book was published in 20, I think, 15. And it hit the bestseller lists in 2019 because I was physically present pushing the book and putting myself in front of people. But you're not always going to find that. Authors can be a very... Um, authors, it, it depends. You know, some of us are comfortable speaking and are good in front of a crowd. We can also be introverts. There are authors that would rather die then go up on stage. Um, and when they do, they do die. Like it doesn't work. People aren't motivated by their appearance and their speaking style to go buy their book. I'm fortunate enough that, you know, I did some like stage in high school and stuff like that. And I was in, played piano. I know what it's like to have a spotlight on you and to have it only be you and have everyone looking at you. Uh, I dealt with that early on as a child, um, like competing in piano competitions. And when you do that, Nothing else will ever scare you. <laughs> <laughs> we are joined by Mindy McGinnis, whose new book, Heroin with an E, is out on the market. Mindy, it's been a lot of fun to be with you today. Oh, well, thank you. Yeah, this is a, an enjoyable experience. Do you like to be interviewed? Oh, I love it. Uh, people, <laughs> we all are uh, pretty interested in ourselves, I think, first and foremost. So people are usually, just about anyone is pretty happy to talk about themselves and creatives more so than anyone. So yeah, I always like being interviewed and I like to talk about the work. I like to talk about the art that goes into creativity and into writing, but also just the publishing industry because so many people don't understand the ins and the outs and all of the elements of it. And I will tell people things about the book industry that just blows their mind and it's fun for me to be on the inside of that now after having been someone that would go into a bookstore and just be like wowed and amazed at everything and especially so for example one fun fact that most people don't realize if you walk into a chain bookstore so a Barnes and Noble and you see a book that is front and center on one of their uh, displays the publisher paid to have it placed there so there are it's called it's literally called placement so they will more or less rent space to have their titles put somewhere that's easily visible and they will put the titles that they know are going to have a little more of a chance their front list titles they're going to be in the space the spaces where they know people's eyes are going to go 
So you can always judge how much, how invested a publisher is in a title on its placement in a Barnes and Noble. And that's the kind of thing that when I tell people, they're like, wow, that's amazing. I never knew that. I thought that the staff decided what they put out on the display. I'm like, no, absolutely not. They are told by corporate who rented this space today for this week or whatever the case may be. And this title has to go here. Uh, what do you make of the rise of Amazon, the loss of Barnes and Nobles, the loss of coffee shops where people used to go and read books? Well, it definitely happened. Um, but indie bookstores are making a comeback. If you look at the stats, um, Publishers Weekly is a weekly magazine that comes out about the publishing industry, and they always have the stats uh, every week of the sales. And independent bookstores are coming back. People are reacting to the shop local, buy indie movement. It's happening. There has been pushback against Amazon, but in the end, Amazon is the largest retailer in the world, but they also are the number one seller of books. I can't give you an accurate stat right now, but if Amazon doesn't carry your book, you're not going to do well. You absolutely have to be present on Amazon in order to have any kind of meaningful sales. And that is very frustrating because then you are under the thumb of the corporate uh, bigwig and there's nothing that you can do about it. Um, one of the things that is interesting about Amazon, so for example, I was talking earlier about my front list selling my backlist. They don't carry deep stock of, and, and they, they can't possibly because the millions and millions of books exist. So they don't have more than, say, five or six copies of a book that was written, let's say my first book, which was written six years ago. They're not going to have more than probably 10 copies of it available. So when my new book comes out and my front list is selling my back list and people are like, oh, I want to buy more books by this author, they go to Amazon generally to buy it and they run out of stock quick. So like right now, Two of my books are entirely out of stock on Amazon, uh, previously published books. And my uh, publisher had to go, literally go make more because my front list sold so many that Amazon didn't have enough in stock. I mean, it's a good problem to have, obviously. This is a positive, but uh, that's where you run into you're going to be better served to go to your local uh, bookseller and ask them to order it for you because they, for one thing, are going to benefit more. People often ask me, and I appreciate the question, do I, as an author, benefit more from them buying it from Amazon or buying it locally from an indie bookstore? Buy it locally. It has nothing to do with my cut. Support your indie bookstores. Amazon will be fine without you buying my books from them. If you prefer to buy from Amazon because they deliver directly to your door, hey, I get it. The other day, I needed to buy a calculator, some coffee, and I think pantyhose. Like the weirdest, you know, collection. Oh, and batteries. Like I needed the weirdest collection of things. And I live in the middle of nowhere. It's 20 minutes to go buy something. So I put together the weirdest collection of items that I needed on Amazon. And I have Amazon Prime. So it was on my doorstep the next day. So I get it. Convenience is what we pay for today. And so if you prefer to buy from Amazon, cool. Also using your libraries, those uh, library checkouts are good for authors. We're not being... um, we're not being deprived of a sale by you reading a book from the library. If you want to use a library, do it. Use your library. Read books from the library. That is beneficial to us. So always buy local if you can. If you can't, okay. I mean, I do understand the uh, the convenience of Amazon or any type of, of seller that's going to ship directly to you. That's great. Um, the only thing I would say, please don't illegally download our books. That does hurt us. Mm. Out of the eight books that you've put out, uh, which one sold the best? 
So far, The Female of the Species would be my best-selling book. That one came out, I believe, in 2015. It is a rape, revenge, vigilante justice story about a young girl whose older sister is raped and murdered. It happens in a very small town, and everybody pretty much knows who did it, but they don't have enough physical evidence to convict the man. And so he walks, and the little sister is not okay with that, so she kills him. And that's the first chapter. And the rest of the book is just about her processing this fact that she has murdered someone, and she doesn't feel bad. So what does that mean? And the whole book is just a study of rape culture, of sexism, but also violence and the cycle of violence and how do we process the world that we live in today. In your opinion, why is that the bestseller? Well, because it doesn't pull any punches. So when it comes to content, uh, we're talking sex, drugs, violence. It has everything. But it's not there for titillation. It's not there for shock value. It's an honest assessment of an average life. And um, especially for a young female, I mean, your average life is going to have some violence in it, uh, even like microaggressions or an actual attack, like whatever the case may be. And it, it's my most selling book because everyone can relate to it females and specifically males can relate to it because even though it is a feminist book, something I always am sure to capitalize on and make sure everyone understands is that feminism doesn't equal hating men. I am a feminist. I love men. I think they're great. So I was very sure to include um, a male narrator in this book that is a great guy. He's a perfectly wonderful human being. He's a real male. He's a true, honest high school boy but he's a good human being he's a good man and so um i have many 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 male readers that love this book uh females obviously love this book so uh that is my that is my best-selling book to this day when i was promoting heroin i would i sign more copies of the female of the species than i do whatever book is the newest one species is the one that sells the most and um i'm most well known for how many copies did it sell or has it sold today? I, I wouldn't be able to throw you a number right now. I would have to actually look at my statements. We only get royalty statements every six months. Um, I'm ballparking. I'm guessing I'm going to say 30,000 copies, and that's a guess. Which book, in your opinion, was your best? Mm, so the one that I'm talking about tonight at the Orange branch of the Delaware Library is A Madness So Discreet. And that one is the gothic historical thriller. I believe it has the most craft because I was writing a historical. So first of all, there's so much research involved. But also, I am writing about criminal profiling and justice systems in the 1890s. I have to do so much research. It's also set in an insane asylum. I have to write knowledgeably about what life would be like in an insane asylum in the 1890s. I have to write about – I have to create a serial killer and use methods that they would have had only in the 1890s to catch him, a lot of them were completely inaccurate, right? So I had to find ones that, you know, realistically would have worked to catch this guy. So I researched for 18 months before I wrote a word of that book. I could tell you so many things about brains just because I studied lobotomies specifically for a very long time. 18 months of research went into that book. And then I wrote it in three weeks. I wrote the bulk of it in three weeks. Uh, that wasn't a healthy choice mentally, emotionally, or physically, but I had, there was a miscommunication about my deadline. Um, I thought I had three months, I had three weeks and my publisher was really cool. They were like, Hey, you know, we can just push it back a year if you need. 
And I was like, no, I, I'm going to see if I can do this. I'm going to see if I can write a book in three weeks. And I did. And um, to be honest with you, I need to read it because I wrote it in such a hurry. I There are scenes and moments that people will talk to me about. They'll be like, well, my favorite scene was when, and they will reiterate a scene that I have no memory of. I have no concept of what they're talking about. And so I will have to one day sit down and read that book. But typically authors don't read our books once they are in a finished form because there's always something we would change and we can't change it anymore. This is the final form. And especially when I read a book that I wrote, like Not a Drop to Drink, it's my first book. It came out in 2013. I wrote it in 2010. I am nine years a more experienced and better writer now than I was then. So when I do a reading and I read out loud, if you were following along on any of my books, I'm changing what's on the page as I read because I'm editing it <laughs> because I would do it differently now. And so I, most authors that I know, the vast majority don't read their own books after they have been uh, published in final form. And I would probably make the exception with A Madness So Discreet because I would love to write a sequel one day for one thing. And for another, I do feel that it was written in almost a fugue state. Uh, I need to be familiar with it. But also, um, I know that it's good. It won the Edgar Allan Poe Award. I had so many people talk to me about that book. And that one came out in 2015. And um, still, like, I will have so many people approach me about that book. And it's a smaller audience than the audience for the female, the species, but it is dedicated. I get emails from readers around the world asking for a sequel. And, you know, nothing is more of a compliment than that. At what point were you able to quit the library and make this your job? Um, it was upon the publication of my fifth and sixth novels. I was able to no longer work full time. But again, I was working on my salary was about $16,000 a year. So I wasn't giving up a lot when I decided that I was going to become a full time writer. Um, I was on my fifth and sixth published novels. I had a year where I had two books come out in one year, which is not typical. I had a fantasy series that I had pitched to HarperCollins. And at that point in my career, I had written post-apocalyptic historical and contemporary. And now I'm pitching them fantasy, which is a whole new genre. And they were like, ah, we don't really think we can sell you as a fantasy writer. And my agent and I were like, okay, fine, you know, we'll see if someone else wants to. And Penguin Random House bought it like a week later. So that was really cool. But suddenly there's intense pressure on me because I have two books coming out in the same year. At one point at that time in my life, I was juggling four different projects. I was drafting a book. I was editing a book. I was copy editing another book. And I was promoting a fourth and at that point, yes, that is your full-time job. Um, I would say that I quit the day job not because I was financially stable enough to, but because I had to in order to deliver the time and care that needed to be given to my writing career at that time. What has that done for you to no longer have a day job? Um, it's actually, you know, it sounds great, right? So for like for the first month, it was wonderful. It's like, hey, I make my own schedule and I can sleep in and I decide if I'm working or not. It sounds great. But in the end, it's actually not that great because as we talked about in the first hour, you don't have a day job. You don't have office hours. You don't have a door that you walk through where you're leaving work behind you. It's always with you. And your phone is constantly going off. Like you have an email come in. You get a text from someone that needs an answer to a question right now. And 
and you're always working. You're always on call. But you are also the hardest part is has become. So, for example, people usually don't understand this. I don't have health insurance unless I buy it myself. I don't have retirement. I am basically hoping that I get an idea that will be a book that will make it possible for me to pay my bills and eat and have a house and, you know, uh, have health care, all of those things. Um, it sounds like this glitzy, wonderful life. Every author I know, with the exception of very few, but every author I know um, is is really dependent upon a spouse or a full-time job. Very, very, very few authors write full-time and make a living. It's like less than 1%. Now, do you have a spouse? No, I do not. I I am doing this on my own. I am fortunate enough to be able to do that. But um, also when I talk about the fact that, you know, I am uh, able to be a full-time writer, I'm also just not a person that invests in things that other people do. So, for example, I have jeans that I wore in high school, right? I'm still wearing them because they work, because they're there. Um, I have a coat that I got five years ago. That's still my new coat, right? Like I'm just the kind of person, I don't buy a lot of physical things. I don't need objects. And so I am able to really use any income specifically for livelihood, shelter, food, bills, things like that. I'm not a person that says I'm going to go on a 10-day cruise. I'm more likely to rent a cabin in the woods for a week. Like to me, that's a vacation. To go away is a vacation, not to go hit a tourist spot. So I'm not spending money on things that um, generally you think of people spending money on, I'm, I'm just not a person that commodifies a lot of things. What I spend money the most on would, would be entertainment, entertainment. Um, you know, I don't pay for cable, but I'll pay for a streaming service if there's a good show on, right? I just started paying for CBS all access because the new Twilight Zone is on and Jordan Peele is hosting it. And for me, like I'm the kind of person I'm so stingy. I was like $10 a month. I don't want to pay $10 a month. And then I'm like, oh, but I really want to watch the new Twilight Zone, right? So I, I'll do that. But that that's where my money is going to go. If there's anywhere it goes is, is towards um, the consumption of entertainment because art creates art. If I am watching something, I never know what might spark something new. So I would say like the majority of my extra cash goes to uh, probably that and cat food. I have five cats. So cat food. Yeah, that's that's where the that's where the money goes. Living that type of life. Is it hard to find relationships? Is it hard to find dates? Do you miss that part of it? Oh, not really. I, I'm not married, but I have been with the same guy for 12 years. So I don't have to worry about that. And it's nice. It's nice to not have to worry about that. I don't know how people date in the modern world. It seems very scary. Um, I don't, I don't, I definitely don't miss it. I mean, it's not related to my work life at all, but no, I don't miss that. I ha- I'm not married, but I have been with the same fella for 12 years. So I don't have to worry about that, thankfully. And he's supportive. Oh, he's wonderful. Yes, like absolutely uh, supportive of what I do. And um, he is also a creative. So uh, we understand each other's um, what makes us tick and how we operate. So that's always nice. The new book, Heroin, uh, where do you put it in the book uh, list? You told us what you thought the best was. Where do you put it? Mm, I put it on probably the most relevant one. 
uh, probably the one that most people are going to relate to. One of the things that I came across when I was working on this, when I would I talk about my books that are going to be coming up, a kind of kind of a litmus test when I'm talking to groups of people. I'm like, well, I have a book coming out next year, and it's about the opioid epidemic. And without fail, every time I made that comment, someone would approach me after the event and say, I'm excited about this book, but it'll be difficult for me to read because my son, because my dad, because my sister, because my aunt, my child, everyone knows someone, everyone. And that is why I think it's probably the most important book. Um, if I was going to, to say this book is the most this or the most that, I would say this one's the most relevant and the most timely and probably the most important um, at this unfortunate turn of events. You talked earlier about your books not always having happy endings. Mm-hmm. Why is that? Because the world doesn't have happy endings. Really? Oh, it does. But reality, I was raised on books where good things were happening and you always knew that your hero was going to save the day and survive and get the girl. And I was raised on this and I read everything like I was a voracious reader and you know suddenly I go out and I experience the real world and that's not how it goes you know you're not you're not getting a happy ending every day you're not you are not guaranteed that um Stephen Crane Stephen Crane wrote a wonderful (laughs) it's a wonderful short story called The Open Boat and it is about um a ship that crashes and there's I think four survivors I read it a long time ago I read it in college but there are like four survivors and they're trying in this little raft of a survival boat to get to shore and they see shore in the end and there's like a guy almost like practically dying and he's almost to the shore and he's either drowning like I forget what happens but he's, his, his last thought is you know this isn't fair I can see land I survived this shipwreck and I'm not gonna make it that's not fair and yeah that's true life's not fair and we've just been fed a steady diet of you know there'll be a happy ending there'll be a wedding at the end everybody lives things are going to be okay the dog will get adopted right and and that's not necessarily true and there's that dichotomy between reality and between what some people prefer to read for escape and that is perfectly fine you read whatever you want but if you're reading for escapism and happy endings don't pick up my books is your life happy I'm happy. Yeah. Um, it is so funny. So it can happen. It can happen, but my, my life, I'm happy. But is my life, like, happy? Am I happy all the time? No, nobody is. But that's usually what you see portrayed, especially in romance. And that's why I don't read that particular genre, because it just galls me, because it's not a true representation of a relationship. But um, I think... Oftentimes, when people meet me, because I do write dark subjects, I write dark subjects, I tackle tough topics. These are the things that interest me, and that's what I write about. And then people meet me, and they're always surprised. If they have read my books before they meet me, they are shocked at who I am as a person. They're like, you seem really nice. Like, they're confused, right? And that's because I take all that darkness, I put it in the books, so I don't have to live it, right? I don't have to roll around in it. I can put all that thought process, I can put all those darker aspirations and thoughts into a book so they're not still in my head. And I have the opposite experience when I do events and people are like, oh, you're so funny. You're so funny. I can't wait to read your book. And I'm like, don't base it on that. <laughs> Where does the darkness come from in your life? Oh, I have no idea. I had a great childhood. 
I had a wonderful childhood, a lovely family, grew up, you know, married parents, happy parents, uh, older sister, dogs, cats, grew up on a farm, grew up in nature, extended family, everybody's happy. Um, there is no answer for why I am the way I am. Believe me, my mother still can't figure it out. She'd love to know. <laughs> <laughs> That's interesting. Um Tell everybody about the event tonight. We do want to remember to mention that again. Absolutely. The event in Delaware. The event in Delaware. I will be at the Orange uh, Orange Branch of the District. I'm sorry. I will be at the Orange Branch of the Delaware County Library starting at, I'm going to pull it up here, starting at 7 p.m. I will be at the Orange Branch of the Delaware District Library, and I will be talking about A Madness So Discreet, which is my gothic historical thriller set in an insane asylum. But I will have all of my books there available for sale. Um, paperbacks are $10. Hardcovers are 15 I can do cash. I can do credit cards. I can do checks. And, um, of course, everything available for signing. And I'm just there to chat. So, like, if you want to come by and just talk or ask me questions about writing, about the publishing industry, about any of my books, I will be there at 7 p.m. tonight. Of a book, $10, $15, how much does the author get? Okay, so when we're talking about that, generally, an author makes 15% of hardcover sales, 10% of a paperback. So a paperback is $10. Usually, if I sell a paperback, I'm getting $1 off that sale. But that sounds terrible, but the way it works is you get paid in advance. So let's say I got a $10,000 advance for a book. I got more than that, but we're going to use that number as an example. So I got a $10,000 for a book, and let's say I sell. The, the publisher gives me that in advance. So my agent gets 15% of that, and then I get what's left. That's how the agent makes money. So then I get the advance of what is left for that. So an advance is advance upon advance on royalties. So they're paying me that much money in advance saying, we know that you will make this money back off of you. So I am paid that much money. So if I sell one paperback, the publisher gets $9 of that and I get one. And that $1 goes into the hole that has been created in my publishing account. And um, I now that account now reads $9,999, right? So I have to sell, if I'm only selling paperbacks, I have to sell 9,999 more paperbacks in order for my advance to earn out, to balance out to zero. And then the next paperback I sell, I have one dollar to the plus in my account and then you know at the end of every six months they do a, a reckoning and you get sent a check if you earned out uh, to be honest i have not earned out on any of my books yet the only money i have made on sales is from the advance that i get um not a drop to drink which is my first book came out in 2013 and i may earn out on that one in the next year or so possibly but um that's why i mean it, it's just um you know, it's a pot shot. You never know. You never know what you're going to be offered. You never know what's going to sell. Well, you should see me trying to get a loan. It is hilarious. People are like, so how much money did you make last year? And I'm like, well, I made this much money last year. And like, how much do you expect to make next year? I'm like, I have no idea. Somewhere between zero and $100,000. And they're just shocked. They're like, how are we supposed to decide whether or not to give you a loan? And I'm like, I don't know. How am I supposed? They're like, how do you budget? And I'm like, oh, you don't. <laughs> <laughs> like you're just you're just hoping that people buy your books and you only get paid um, about twice a year. So you're you're living off of that and um, hoping that there are no emergencies. Is there any fear in it? Oh, constantly every day. Yeah. 
Fear of what? Fear of not being able to write anymore, for one thing. Um, a lot of people think that once you are published that you've made it, that you've figured it out, that you know what you're doing. This is my eighth book. My ninth book is already in the can. It comes out next year. And um, every time I open up my laptop and I sit down to write, I think, what if I can't today? What if whatever gift has been given to me has burnt out? What if I can't today? And so that's scary, but it's also scary. What if people don't like my book? What if this book flops? What if this lands on its face? And some of my books have, some of my titles have totally flopped and that affects the sales for the next one. I can have a um, absolutely crackerjack idea, but two of my books before this or three have totally bombed. So that affects how much money I get paid for the next one that may be amazing, but I've got those past sales numbers hanging around my neck. So yeah, I mean, it's constant. You never know. When you put all that time and effort and and uh, energy yourself into a book and it flops, mm-hmm. what's that like? It hurts. It hurts, but it hurts most if the book is meaningful to you personally. It is possible to write a book just to fill a paycheck, and I have before, and I won't tell you which one. But <laughs> you, um, you, you do. You are closer to some works than others. So my fantasy series, for me, is an example of real craft, real work, real world building, real effort went into those books. And nobody cares. I mean, nobody. Like, my mom read them. She liked them. My aunt. But, like, that's kind of it. I don't really get a lot of feedback from those books. I'm not a fantasy writer. Fantasy readers tend to read the same authors. They adopt authors, and that's who they stick to. And suddenly I show up with a long history of writing contemporary and darker themes and I have a fantasy and people aren't interested. Fantasy readers aren't interested. And my general readers are like, what is this? And so those books in particular, they really meant something to me. Um, I really busted my creative chops on those books. And they they definitely did not sell well. Um, and, and that's something that you just deal with. I mean, you just deal with and you move on. It's, it's a constant rejection. Like I said in the first hour, you will always be rejected. Even my books that are the best um, selling, you'll have one-star reviews. You will have people that absolutely hate them. And you just have to uh, understand that art is subjective and people are going to love your books or hate them. And they might even love one book and hate the other one. Like, you just don't know. Do you, How much do you internalize it? Or are you able to put it over there and say, okay, that review didn't matter. Okay, that comment didn't matter. I don't read my reviews at all. That way I don't have to worry about it. Because it would bother you. Oh, of course it would bother me. I mean, it's um, – so um, – as a young author, as an author that was first being published, I made the mistake of reading some of my reviews. And they would say things that, um, you know, generally not personally offensive, but they would say things that would be like, well, I don't understand why she made this decision. Well, I have an answer about why I made this decision, but I can't answer you. Like, I can't interact with you because immediately, like, it becomes a thing. And um, there's a there's a whole uh, thing online, uh, authors behaving badly, where people argue with their reviewers and you you don't do that. Like, that is just uh, stepping way outside your bounds. Everybody is going to have their opinion. And, and I have an answer to your question. I have a reason why I did that but if i answer you it's not gonna go well for either one of us so why expose myself to it i mean i did um read my reviews for like my first book and then i learned pretty quickly that there is absolutely no use to it because compliments five-star reviews they make you feel good and compliments do not make you a better writer five-star reviews are going to make you rest on your laurels and one-star reviews are going to make you angry and you can't respond and you can't do anything about them you are doing what you want to do what you've wanted to do making 
enough to live on mm-hmm. it. What do you say to somebody who wants to do something terribly, can't afford to do it on their own? What advice do you give them? Can't afford to do it on their own, meaning... They can't. They have to work someplace else. They have to supplement it. It makes their life more difficult. Sure. So I was working full-time for, um, you know, 10 years and writing on the side. My first book that got picked up was the fifth book that I ever wrote. I had four finished novels that are under my bed and will never see the light of day because number one, they're not good enough. But number two, um, you know, I didn't know what I was doing, but I was determined like this is what I want. I I know that I can be good enough. I know that I can get published. Um, I would always say if you really want to do something, you have to be prepared to make those sacrifices. So I would work full time. I would come home. You know, I still have a house to keep up. I have different things going on in my personal life. I would write from I, I set a word count goal. When I'm writing, I'll be like, I have to write a thousand words today. If it's 11 o'clock and I haven't written a thousand words yet, I have to get up at six, six in the morning to go to work. I'm going to write my thousand words. If that means I am up until 1 a.m. and I get five hours of sleep, then I get five hours of sleep. That's just the way it is. And you And you have to say, I'm not watching TV tonight. I'm not going to play Tetris tonight. You know, I'm not going to do some of the things that I want to do because I want this to be my job someday. So I have to treat it like a job now. That's good advice. Good advice. Uh, A big event coming up at the Columbus Metropolitan Library. We want to mention that as well. That's right. The Ohio Anna Book Festival will be coming on... Let me pull that up. It's coming on April 27th, and it is at the Columbus Metropolitan Public Main Library, which has a new space at 96 South Grant Avenue in Columbus. It's on April 27th from 1030 to 5 p.m. There will be over 100 authors there. They all have either a link to Ohio, live here now, or their books are Ohio related. And we're chatting with uh, Mindy McGinnis today, author of uh, the new book, Heroin, with an E on the end. The next book, uh, can you tell us anything about it? Oh, yes. I sure can. Um, We always get really excited about the next book because it's fresh and shiny and it hasn't been tarred by uh, being released yet. So my next book will come out, I believe, let me double check that. They just gave me the publication date uh, last week. So it looks like... The next book will be coming out March 3rd of 2020. It is called Be Not Far From Me. And it is about a young girl who is lost in the Smoky Mountains. And she is out there for um, three or four weeks on her own with nothing except the clothes that she had on her back at the time that she became lost. And it's just a story about um, her survival and also, of course, tons of internality because she is out there by on her own. I am not writing dialogue. She's alone for four weeks. So um, it's very much reminiscent of the book Hatchet by Gary Paulson. And um, when I was writing this in uh, the beginning of the process, I always have a functioning title. I call this one Drunk Hatchet with a Girl. So it is actually titled Be Not Far From Me. And that will be out March 3rd of 2020. The characters you create in your book, how close are they to you? Um, Every character has a little bit of me in them, but not just the main characters, also the villains, right? So that's something that people ask all the time. They're like, which one of your characters are you? It's like, well, I'm all of them, and I'm also the ones that you hate, okay? I'm also the ones that you're reading and you can't stand, right? So there's a little bit of me in everybody, even the ones that you wish weren't on the page. Is there one that is closest to you? 
I would say that my first book, Not a Drop to Drink, is probably the closest to just my personal lifestyle. Not that I would ever shoot someone that was taking my water resources from me, but I mean, I guess I might if it was in low supply. But I mean, that's kind of the whole question of the book uh, is what what are you willing to do in order to survive? As far as the setting and the personality traits of the main character, but also just the feeling of the book in general, the voice and the feel it's probably closest to who I am as a human being, um, how I live my life, things like that. But, you know, they're all me a little bit. So Heroin, uh, the new book, it is about a softball player. I love softball. I played softball through high school. I played in a co-ed league as an adult. And, you know, writing that book was just so wonderful for me because I get to talk about a sport that I love. I mean, like my heart inside my body, it probably is a softball, right? So um, people aren't going to write about things that they hate, right? Everybody's going to write about something that interests them and something that they love. So all of my books have something in them that, uh, you know, is personal. What's it been like for your family to see this success? Um, I don't know. I don't really ask them because it's very much something that I don't think about because I'm still just me, right? Like, it doesn't matter how big I were to get. I am still just me. Uh, there is nothing different about who I am as a human being. I don't think they see me any differently. They've known me their whole, their whole lives, right? Um, and I'm from a really small town and, and everybody has known me as a child, you know, from a the beginning of my life and so people um there's so much local support and it's fantastic and i love it and um but people are always just like yeah you know i knew you when and i'm like no you know me now you still know me now i'm still just me i'm still just the same person it's just that uh, you know I wrote, I wrote some books and that's cool and it's awesome that i'm able to make a living that way but i don't ever want anybody to see me just as mindy the author right because mindy the author is one thing and mindy the person is a different thing who is the person Oh, I can't tell you that because I'm the author right now. <laughs> I'm pretty, I don't know. I mean, I don't know. How does anyone describe themselves? Any author will tell you that the hardest thing they ever write is their own bio. That is the most difficult thing to write. And um, it's still true. Like, I, I don't know how it, I would describe myself. Uh, it's, it's difficult. And, you know, there is a difference, as I said, between who I am as an author and when I have author persona on and who I am as someone at home. Uh, the person at home is probably drinking coffee and petting a cat. Like, that's probably the best way to personify me. So that's a description. That's a description. That's about as far. That's about all I'm going to give you. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> is it is it hard to talk about yourself? I don't like to talk about myself in the personal arena because there is that barrier. And, and we were talking about social media before and people want you, you know, they want more of you all the time. And I will give you all of author Mindy that you want. Like, that's what she's there for. She's there to be consumed. Private Mindy is there for her family. What's the difference? I don't know. It's a hard thing to describe when it comes to just my own mind, like what I'm willing to share and what for me is private and personal. So, I mean, obviously information, you know, that's obvious. That's not something I'm not going to tell you my social security number right over the air. But um, just as far as like, you know, when it comes to like even my boyfriend's name or the area where I live or what I drive, those kind of things. It's like, you know, I'm probably not going to talk about those things because that's private. 
that's the kind of stuff that isn't relevant to author Mindy. If it's relevant to author Mindy, I'll talk about it all day long. Um, but if it's not, if it's not something that you need in order to consume my books and understand the story, I'm not going to give it to you because that's mine. Do you have any regrets? Mm. In publishing, in writing, I would say, so one of the things that I wrote in my very first book, Not a Drop to Drink, I was writing about a world where there is very little water. And in the book, there is a city mentioned. Now, it is a very rural setting, but they talk about a city. And, um, you know, it's Columbus because the book is set, you know, in the central Ohio. And I didn't want to call it Columbus because I don't – it's not portrayed very sympathetically. Let's put it that way. And in the book, in the future, in this post-apocalyptic world. And I know that people can be really funny about their hometowns and really defensive about their hometowns if they're not portrayed you know, uh, positively in a book. And so I didn't want to call it Columbus because I didn't want to upset people. So I made up a fake name and I called it Intargo. And people read Not a Drop to Drink and they say, you know, it's so realistic and it's very much not sci-fi. It's post-apocalyptic, but it's not dystopian. It's not sci-fi. It's survival. It's Little House in the Prairie, right? And um, people are like, you know, you have all these elements that are just so relatable and everything about it is very Ohio and rural life. And then you have the sci-fi sounding city name. And I'm like, oh, you're right. That was a mistake. That was a mistake. Do you have a philosophy? Mm. Um, my philosophy in writing is always just to be honest. Honest. No sugarcoating. I don't like to – I like to tell things the way they are. And if it's ugly, then I'll go there. And people relate to that and people find it refreshing, um, especially teens. When you're writing about teen life, um, sometimes people ask me, some of the content in my books is, you know, a little too much for some people. And I understand that. But they'll ask, why do you want to write about this when you're writing for teens? And if I'm writing about, you know, rape or suicide or drugs or sex or violence, like, why do you want to write about this for teens? And it's because it happens to them. It happens to them. You know, they're not living Nancy Drew lives up there. And so I'm, I'm honest about that. I'm honest about the rougher experiences of life that we all go through. Do you think there's a misconception about you? <laughs> I don't know. Like, in what way? That people think you're going to be one way when you're another. You said earlier on that people thought that you were yeah, darker. Yeah. I mean, I think people, because they do, I don't know, I think they expect me to be depressed, to be unhappy, to be constantly ruminating on the negatives. And I don't. Uh, that's because I got it out already. You know, I did that. I gave it to you in the form of a book. And it's a gift for you to read. And um, <laughs> if you want. So that's the kind of thing that I do think there is that misconception that I'm an unhappy person, that I'm a brooder, that I'm negative, that I'm dark. Um, I am. But like we all are a little bit, right? Like there's some aspect of that in all of us. I would assume. I don't know. I only know what it's like to be me. So um, that's an aspect of me that I am able to channel and channel outward. And then I'm able to um, have the better things left behind to actually live with day by day. What do you like to read? Oh, I'll read anything. I will read absolutely anything. Um, I just, I'm currently reading Robert Galbraith, which is J.K. Rowling, writing in a male pseudonym, a, her thriller private detective series. I am reading that. I'm on the third one. It's called Career of Evil. I've, I read that. Um, I'm reading, I read nonfiction all of the time, especially historical nonfiction. If something grabs my attention, I've been obsessed with the Spanish flu for about a year. I've just been reading a lot about the 1918 Spanish 
flu lately. And, um, you know, if, if something grabs me, then I'm going to read about it until I can't find any more new information about it. So, I mean, I will read just about anything with the exception of romance. It's I just can't do it. Why do you think that is? Um, well, I'm divorced for one thing, but for another, I just have a hard time because it's it's fantasy. Everybody, you know, they're happy. You get the happily ever after, and that doesn't exist. Like people can be married and be happy, but they're not going to be happy forever, ever after. You're going to have fights. You're going to have good years and bad years, right? In a long term relationship, and you know, you don't see fiction that ref- you don't see romance that reflects that. You get the wedding at the end. And I'm always just like, oh, God, you know, show me the next one. Show me their big fight. Show me, show me I got a job in San Francisco and we have to move and leave your family behind. Show me that, you know. Do you think that always happens? I don't know because I've only been in a few relationships. Uh, but I do, I don't think, you, you, you will never find someone that is happy every day in their relationship for the rest of their lives with their significant other. That is a myth. That is not possible. And I think that we're set up, I think young readers especially, we get set up to believe that that can happen. And then we are disappointed in our relationships in reality because they don't play out the way that it did in your Danielle Steele book, right? And so, you know, I actually probably do have some issues that I need to mine out from some of the reading I did when I was younger where it's like no real world real relationships don't work that way is there a book that you would recommend to somebody that you started with for a young reader (sighs) well Hatchet definitely Hatchet by Gary Paulson that is a great book and um, never stops being relevant Um, anything by Gary Paulson I would say Um, things that I read when I was younger something I tell people all the time when I was a kid, we didn't really have YA literature. It didn't exist. So there were a handful of writers. You had R.L. Stein, you had Lois Duncan, you had Judy Bloom, you had Beverly Cleary. But that was kind of it. You didn't really have this expanse that we have now. And so I went from reading books, and I was, I was a voracious reader and I was a highly advanced reader. So I went in probably fifth or sixth grade from reading books where the plot was, I really want a dog and I can't have a dog because my mom's allergic to dogs and I found a stray and I'm keeping it in the basement and I have to make sure no one knows. And that's the plot to Cujo. The dog will kill you, right? That's the leap that I made. And um, so I, I was reading Stephen King when I was in fifth or sixth grade. And it probably shows. Mindy McGinnis has been the guest today. It's been a great couple hours. Uh, the new book is Heroin. We'll have to have you back. It's uh, two hours. We filled it up like nothing. Absolutely. Thank filled you for like having nothing. me. Uh, final question before we go. Finish the sentence. Mindy McGinnis is? A brunette. <laughs> You're not gonna get anything out of me. Give me a little more than that. We, we, we've got we've got like thirty seconds now. She's five nine. Five nine. <laughs> Where can people get the books? Uh, you can get my books anywhere. Um, any bookstore will be carrying them. If you're looking for new releases, if you're looking for backlist, if you're looking for older older titles, go online. Um, and if you want to learn more about me, go to mindymcginnis.com. You can see all of my titles, all my social media, Twitter, Facebook, Instagram. You can find me there. And they will see you're a brunette. And you will see that I am a brunette. No lies. No lies. No I am 5'9". <laughs> <laughs>